At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be continuing a sermon series we began a couple of weeks ago called The Five Follows. And this series is helping us understand how we can grow in our faith along life's road. And as we began this series a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how our lives were all headed in a direction. There is a destination that we are moving towards. And and really, it's one of two directions or destinations, as we saw from Philippians chapter 3. Either our lives are headed in the direction of destruction, or our lives are headed in the direction of transformation. Either we are moving towards death, or we are moving towards life. And again, two weeks ago, I asked you the question, how many of you desired your lives to be moving in the direction of life and not death, of transformation and not destruction? And amazingly, two weeks ago, everybody was on board with moving towards transformation. And then last Sunday, I asked the same question. We reviewed the same principle, and I asked that question again. And and amazingly, everybody was on board again. And I think that that was demonstrated even by the fact that you came back for week two of that series. Well, as we gather today, your presence would would make me think that you are still desiring to move in the direction of transformation. Am I reading the tea leaves correctly as we gather today? I, I think that that is our desire, right? Our desire is that our lives would be transformed. Our desire is that we would live life as it was intended and not that we would move towards destruction and death. But, but how do we get there? How do we get to transformation in life Well, we've seen in this series that we don't get there by following ourselves and our own intuitions, but we get there ultimately by following Jesus, who God has sent to guide us to that direction. We begin by placing our faith and our trust in him, but we continue in this life and following him in many different ways. And in this series, we've, we've talked about five different ways that we follow Jesus. Uh, last week, we began looking at those five follows by talking about how we follow Jesus into his word, that we use the scripture as our final rule and authority and our marching orders for this life. We looked at that last Sunday. Well, today we're going to continue this series by talking about how we can follow Jesus by following him into worship, into worship. And so we're going to look at that this morning. But before we we unpack this idea of worship, I just want to ask you, what is it that you think about when I say worship? When I say worship, what is it that kind of rests inside of your your, your psyche or your mind? You know, for, for many of you, when I say worship, you think of singing, Right? You think of singing. We, we just had a portion of our, our time and gathering together where we sang these songs, and some of you might even refer to that section of the service as the worship section of the service. And so we, we typically associate singing with worship. And, and if we think that worship is only singing, we, we run the risk of making some statements that would be like this, I wish I was better at worship, meaning I wish I had a better voice, I wish I could play an instrument. We think that worship is only for those who are on a stage whose voice is worthy of being magnified in a microphone like Edie's or Greg's, right? That's, that's what we think uh, sometimes when we think of worship, when we, when we confine it and reduce it to merely singing. For some of us, that's what we do. And so we, we, th- we say, I'm not very good at worship, or even I don't like to worship because we don't like to sing in public with others. 
right? If we reduce worship down to that point, uh, we can run the risk of making that mistake. For, for others of us, we might think of worship and we think of a place or an event. As a matter of fact, the room that we're sitting in right now is a room called the worship center. And so we might think of worship as a location. And if we can't come to this room, we might make a statement to a friend or a family member that says, I can't worship this week or something like that. But when we look at Scripture, friends, what we see is that worship is something far greater than just a single activity that we do or an event that we attend. But worship is ultimately our response to God. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we can appropriately respond to God and have our response instructed by what we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. So if you've got a Bible, take it and turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're going to spend the balance of our time in these two chapters. And in these chapters, we're going to look and see two things that help us know how we can follow Jesus into worship by looking at these two chapters from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The first thing that I want us to see is this. I want us to see that we need not wonder about our God of wonders. We need not wonder about our God of wonders. Now, what in the world am I talking about when I put this phrase on the screen and as we we talk about it? Well, maybe it would be helpful for us to set the context of the book of Revelation. When we think of the book of Revelation, friends, oftentimes we, we, we think of it as something that is just very distant from our everyday lives, that it has no bearing or application to our lives today because there's a lot of symbolic language in there and there's a lot of uh, prophetic events that are described and it just feels so different and apart from us. But, but I think part of the reason why we think of the book of Revelation and we, we keep it at arm's length is because we fail to remember the context into which this letter was written. And so before we, we really unpack it any, any further, we need to remember the context into which the book of Revelation was given. Now, the, the book of Revelation was, was given by God to the church, but through the apostle John. And so what do we know about John at the time that the Revelation was given? Well, the first thing we know about John is that John was one of the 12. He was one of the original apostles. He was one of those who spent that three-year mission trip with Jesus. And then after Jesus' resurrection was one of those who took the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's who John was. But one of the things you need to know is by the time John receives this revelation that is recorded for us here that he is the last living of the 12. In other words, the other apostles had all died. Now, they had died not living out a full life and, and, and residing in Del Boca Vista in a gated community, having retired after you know, receiving a number of spoils of this life. No, the, the apostles died because of their faith in Christ. They were martyred because of their insistence in going around the world and proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because of that, each of John's friends had died. He had mourned their deaths. Not only had he mourned their deaths, but also he had seen the city of Jerusalem fall. Jerusalem was a very important city for the Jewish people. Um, John himself was a, a citizen of the nation of Israel, and their capital city, which was an important one even in Scripture, had been sacked in 70 AD by the Romans. The evil empire, led by Darth Vader or C Caesar or whoever you want to call it, had come down to 
the city of Jerusalem and had destroyed it. And with it seemingly disappearing a number of the hopes of the people of God. So John had not only mourned the death of his friends, but also he had mourned the loss of his city. And when he received this revelation, friends, he is exiled and imprisoned in the Isle of Patmos, serving hard time there because of his faith in Christ. Not only was he imprisoned at this time, but he was longing for the return of Jesus that Jesus had promised. And there was even an expectation that John and the other apostles had that Jesus would come back even within their lifetime, and he had not come back yet. And even today, as we sit here, Jesus has not come back yet. And so John, experiencing all of these losses and with all of this weighing upon him. This was the context in which he received the letter. It's quite possible that he was sitting in a cave in Patmos praying a prayer where he was wondering out loud to God, God, I wonder where you are. Now, when we think about that context, friends, suddenly the book of Revelation doesn't seem so distant, does it? Because my guess is that you're not in a cave in Patmos, but you have sat in your bedroom or your prayer closet or you've gone on a walk or you've driven around the neighborhood or you've been reflecting with a friend or, or just saying out loud, God, I wonder where you are. We've longed to get pregnant and we've been unable. We've longed to adopt and the door has been closed. We've longed to, to, to live this life and at the time we thought that life was going to begin, then cancer came. A death of a spouse, a, a death of a child. We've dealt with those experiences. And not only those experiences in our personal life and those, those tragedies, but, but also think about just some of the struggles that we have go through in the world in which we live. We've seen you know, evil empires rise and forces that deny the lordship of Jesus and don't live according to his word that they seem to be winning in the world around us. And we're confused by these things. Not only do we see those things happening in the world, but even in our own souls, we, we, we sense this struggle to get past the sin that is entangling itself around our bodies and preventing us from moving forward. In light of all of those things, we might have sat in that prayer closet or the bedroom or gone on that drive or gone on that walk and prayed to God and said, God, I wonder where you are. My prayers are not being answered the world around me is not reflecting the hope that I once had. Well, friends, into that world, God gives a picture. God gives a revelation to remind us of what is true. He reminds us of what we cannot see, but what is currently existing and what will soon come back to the earth so that we might not lose heart. The book of, of Revelation is, is a picture from God to us so that we would know what is true and what is real, even in a world that might seek to confuse us. You know, I, I, was, I was thinking about this this week, and maybe one way to help us think about, about this reality uh, is kind of a silly illustration, but it's helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. Uh, and it has to do with the restaurant Tarahumaras. Anybody like Tarahumaras? Ever, ever been there? I, I'm not getting any compensation for this, and if you own a Mexican restaurant, come talk to me. We'll, we'll, we'll go visit there this week. It'd be exciting. But here's the thing. So I like Tarahumaras, but, but one of the things that always amazes me about Tarahumaras is how fast the food comes out. Does that amaze you too? I mean, you go there and you no more get enchilada out of your mouth and it's sitting in front of you. 
Uh, it's just amazing how that happens. And, and because of that reality, I think that they, they may anticipate us not believing that they're actually preparing it when we order it. So what do they do at Tar Humars? I don't know if they still do this, but at least for a time, they had a big screen television, and on that, on that television was an image of what was happening in the kitchen so that we might know that they're actually cooking it and preparing it as we sit in the restaurant. I think not in the sense of the speed in which it comes, but I think that as we who are sitting in the restaurant of this world and in the, of this life, God wants to give us a picture of what's happening in the kitchen and what will soon be delivered to our table. Friends, I think that's what we have in the book of Revelation. What we have in Revelation really is an answer to the question, God, I wonder where you are. God responds in this book and he says, hey, I'm here and I'm in charge. In chapter 1, we get a current portrait of Jesus in Revelation 1. He shows up and he's powerful. He's not meek and mild. In chapters 2 and 3, we get a current report on the churches, report cards given. Jesus still cares about what is happening and transpiring among his people. In chapters 4 and 5, we get a current picture of heaven so that we know of the authority and the power and the majesty of our God, and we're going to see that more in just a moment. But then in chapters 6 to 19, we get a future picture of the judgment that is going to come upon the earth. God's aware of the evil that is around us, and he will one day judge it. In chapter 20, we get a picture of a future kingdom upon the earth. In other words, the promises that God has given to establish a kingdom upon the earth, Jesus returning and establishing this kingdom, those promises will one day come true. God is faithful. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we get a a picture of a future new heaven and new earth where you and I will be able to reside forever. So we have a future and we have a hope. See, in a world that is wondering, God, I wonder where you are, the book of Revelation is given by God to us to let us know, I, I am here. And ultimately, it's given so that we get a fresh picture, a contemporary portrait of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God gives this revelation so that we might see on the screen what is happening in the kitchen and what will one day soon be delivered to our table. And in chapter 4 and and 5, we have this picture of heaven. So I want to just read it for us so that we, we see this picture of what is actually transpiring in heaven right now. And I want to read it in two parts. I'm going to begin by, by reading the first eight verses of chapter 4 and reflecting on that, and then we'll, we'll look at the rest of it in just a moment. But, you know, there's a temptation when we come to Revelation to get lost in the images. And there's a temptation when we come here to want to have a message that explains every little part and piece that we see inside of this passage. And if that's your hope and goal from me today, I, I'm sorry to say you're going to be sadly disappointed. I'm not going to attempt to explain everything inside of these verses. There are parts of it that I don't understand, but what I do want us to see is, is really the, what I believe is the intent of this passage. And the intent of this passage is for us to see a picture of a heavenly reality that is absolutely awesome. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. Somebody had had opened the portal, and he says, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said to me, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Jesus opens the door. It's Jesus who is speaking, and he says, John, come up here. I want to show you what's really going on. And at once, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and with one seated on that throne... And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Friends, is that picture awesome or what? And if we look on the screen that God has given for us here, do you realize that's what we see is the reality that exists right now? This scene is unfolding. There's a throne in heaven, and it's not unoccupied. There is one who sits sovereign over the universe. There is one who is large and in charge and in control. We see that there. What, what, what is meant by, by the, the rainbow that looks like an emerald? And I, was, I, I don't know exactly, but, but what I can say is it's impressive, right? He, he's trying to, to grasp at it, but, but the best he can do, he says, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like that, but it's just awesome. And there's a sea in front of him, but that sea is like a sea of glass. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but, it, but it's really impressive. It's, it's blowing him away. There's creatures around him that are, that are worshiping him, but, but they look like this or they look a little bit like that, but it's just amazing the power and the majesty of the throne room of heaven. Friends, this picture is given to us so that we would know, so that we would know that we need not wonder about our God of wonders. He still is powerful. He still is in charge, and he still will bring about his plans upon the earth. We need not wonder about that. And so as we gather here today, we can receive some encouragement by knowing that. But but knowing that he is still wonderful, that's just part of it that we see in this passage. In this passage, we also see how we might appropriately respond to our God of wonders. And that response is really revealed throughout the passage, but I want to focus specifically on verse 9 of chapter 4 through the end of chapter 5. And that response is very clear. The response that that we are to have in light of our wonderful God is that we are to worship him. We are to worship our wonderful God. That's the only true appropriate response to his greatness. Now, I want you to, to, to keep with that kind of framework in mind. I want you to think about that as I read these verses because what we're going to see over and over again is every group of people, every group of, of beings in heaven are responding in a consistent way to God. They're worshiping him. Verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. 
Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. You see this pattern? Again and again, in the presence of this wonderful God, the entire population of heaven cannot help but falling down and worshiping him. Now, when we see this response so consistently, it's, it's possible for us to begin to develop a definition of worship by looking at the responses that we find here. So what do we learn about worship? Well, the, the first thing that we see is that worship is the response that, that, that comes in light of this God. Uh, Tony Evans says, as when people clamor to see and cheer a celebrity, no prodding is required to incite this worship. When humans and angels behold Christ, the lion and the lamb, they cannot help but fall down in worship. Worship is the response that people have when they see and understand who God is. But it goes on and we see some specifics about what worship is. The first thing we see about worship is that it's an attitude. It's, it's not just an action, but it's an attitude. It's a perspective. It's the way that we respond to God at the, at the core of our being. And it's revealed really in a posture that all of the population of heaven take before God throughout this, throughout this section. What do they do? They continue to fall down. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10, they, they fell down before him. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, they fall down before him. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 14, they fell down and worshiped again and again and again. A, a picture of worship is falling down. This doesn't mean that we can't stand when we sing, but it, it says that when we truly worship, the attitude of our spirit is moving ourselves low while we lift him up. We're saying that he is the one who is worthy. And so we make much of him and not much of us. Again, the, the creatures of, of heaven, the angels, the, the elders, 
these angelic beings again and again, they, they do not make much of themselves. They do not bring attention to themselves, but every time they open their mouths, they're reflecting God. And in their very attitude and orientation, they're minimizing themselves while they lift him high. Friends, what is worship? Worship is the attitude within us that says, God, you are greater than me. As they worship, it's also interesting to see that they had a shared focus. They had a a shared focus as they worship. Notice that every group, as they respond to God, they join together and they say the same words. It's not an individual activity. Now, now, certainly worship can can be individual, and certainly there are individuals who are a part of it, but it's not unique. In other words, we're seeing the same God. We're worshiping the same God. We're, We're lifting up the same God together. And so the words of the four living creatures is the same in verse 8. The words of the elders is the same in verse 11 of chapter 4. It's the same in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. It's the same that the, the angels say in chapter 5 and verse 12. And it's the same that, that all are saying in chapter 5 and verse 13. They, they are joining together and they are sharing a focus together of lifting up God and, and Jesus. That's a, what it means for us to worship. We are minimizing ourselves, we are laying ourselves low, and we are lifting him up, and we are lifting him up together, sharing in a focus on the greatness of who he is. I love how chapter 5 follows chapter 4 because in chapter 4 we see the throne room of heaven, but in chapter 5 we see a spotlight shown on the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. Who is that? It's Jesus himself. There's a focus on Jesus and the worship of heaven. It's appropriate that our songs focus on the person of Jesus as we gather and we sing. It's not just a generic idea, but it's sharing in a focus on him. That's what's happening in heaven. That's what happens when we gather here together a shared focus on the Lord. And, and it's, it's amazing how that shared focus can unite people who are very different. Look at the, the population of heaven. Ultimately, it will include people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You, y'all realize we live in a world that wants to divide everybody, right? I mean, we want to divide people by race. We want to divide people by, by politics. We want to divide people by music style. We want to divide people by school choice. We want to divide people by neighborhoods and cities and, and you name it. We want to divide it by, by nationalities. We want to divide people up. That's, that's what this, this world does, right? And, and, and we, we feel this perplexing idea, like how might unity ever come? How might you unite such different people? There's a lot of strategies that have been employed over time in history on how to do that. There's only one that is effective, ultimately, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is able to unite people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and ultimately he will do so in heaven. See, in the the church, uh, Tony continues and says, Christian unity does not mean uniformity, but it means a shared focus on and worship of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are a diverse group of people. You might think that everybody in here thinks the same way, votes the same way, acts the same way. The reality is that's not true. But as we gather together, you know what we do share in common? Jesus Christ. We are focusing on him 
together. And in in heaven, people that lived under a number of different governments and speak a number of different languages and have a number of different tones and colors to their skin are gathered together and they have a unity. How? Why? Because they are focused on the person of Jesus Christ. What is worship? Worship is laying ourselves low. It's an attitude of focusing on Him. But there are some actions and activities that we can participate in as we worship, uh, as we live out those perspectives. What are those? We see a number of them inside of this passage. The first activity that we see that's a part of worship is the activity of giving, of giving. That's right, in heaven there is still a spirit of generosity and of giving. Well, where do we see that? We see that in chapter 4 and verse 10 where we see these, these elders who are gathered around the throne. What are they doing? But they're, they're bowing down before God. And as they bow before him, what are they doing? But they're casting the crowns on their head and giving them back to God. Now, let me just talk about this for just a moment. Where did they get those crowns? Where did they get them? They got them from Jesus, right? They got them. Thank you, Michael. They got them from Jesus. Well, we know that because when those report cards that were given to the churches earlier, it was talked about how the crowns were given to the faithful in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. What are they wearing, these elders? They're wearing garments that are what color? White. Where did they get those white garments? Well, friends, they, they got those white garments from, from Jesus. Again, he, he, he gave them to them. We, we see this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5 as a reward for the faithful. Where do they get those thrones that they were sitting on and the, the authority that is represented by them? Well, again, friends, we see that in the report cards that Jesus gives to the churches. He says that they will have the opportunity to rule with them in chapter 2, verse 26, and chapter 3, verse 21. So everything they have in heaven was outfitted and given to them by God. And as they worship him in heaven, what are they doing? But they are taking the crowns off their head given to them by God and giving those back to him as an act of worship. Friends, what does it look like for us to lay our lives low before God and to to focus on him? A part of what that looks like is us giving back to him a portion of what he has entrusted to us. If you want to live a life of worship and rhythm, are you going to be giving to his work? That's a part of it. Second thing that we see, though, is is that prayer is a part of it. How do we worship? Well, we worship in part by, by praying. I love the the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Again, you can imagine John on the island of Patmos offering a number of prayers, thinking that they were hitting the roof of that cave and coming back to him, wondering if they ever had made it to the presence of God himself. Had he ever heard their prayers? Would he ever be interested in answering their prayers? Well, friends, what we see in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8 is God answering that question, did your prayers ever make it to me? God says, absolutely, yes. says in chapter 5, 8, says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
By saint, he's not referring to just a special group of people, but he's referring to all who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If we know Jesus and we pray, those prayers have made it to the throne room of heaven, and they are pictured there as incense. Now, what is incense? Incense is something that is pleasing. It's a pleasing aroma. What we see here is that John is shown a picture that says that God is receiving our prayers and they are a pleasant aroma in his presence. Later on in chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, those prayers will be answered in a response that God sends to the earth. But the whole point of this picture is that, that prayer is a part of worship and it's something that pleases God. As we pray, we, we lay our lives low and we say, God, you are the one who can do that which I long to see happen. And so we make our requests known to him. We lay ourselves low and we focus on the one who is able to deliver not just what we want, but ultimately what we need and is consistent with his good plans. Friends, prayer is a part of it. Our, our, if we're going to have this attitude of worship, are we, are we giving? Are we, are we praying? Are we singing? Are we singing? Now, some of you may argue the word sing does not appear inside of these chapters, and that's true. But what we do see is that groups of people and angelic beings again and again and again are joining together and they're saying the same things. Well, when do we join together and say the same things? When we sing so often, right? We, we've taken these words, these truths about God, and we say them together and we put them to, to melody so that we can remember them. And we add emotion to them as we do those things. It's, it's a part of God's plan, as we worship, we, we are making declaration of who God is as we, as we share together a focus upon him. Even if you're not good at, at singing, can you just speak the words as we sing them? Let others carry the tune, but add your, 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 your volume to it. As a hearty amen that says, this is true, we believe this. This is a focus that we are going to share and gather around. Giving praying, singing. But the last aspect of this is obeying, obeying. Now, we have to leave these two chapters to see this most explicitly, but as we do, we're going to be in a, a similar scene. John was not the only one who was given this vision of, of heaven. As a matter of fact, Isaiah was invited up, and in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the very same throne room of God. And as Isaiah sees this throne room of God, God says, I have a message that I need to deliver to the earth. Who will take it there? And when Isaiah hears this, how does he respond in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8? He says, here I am, Lord, send me. It was a response of worship, but it was a response of obedience. He was laying his life and his agenda low and saying, God, I will take and do the work that you have called me to do. I will take the message that you want me to share, and I will go and I will share it. Obedience is a part of our response of worship. Now, friends, is it possible to give without worshiping, to pray without worshiping, to sing without worshiping, to obey without worshiping? Of course it is. It's possible just to, just to give as a as a auto withdrawal and you never really think about it. You just set it up. It might be used for good things, but it's not really an act of worship. It's just something you took care of a long time ago. You don't think about it anymore. Is it possible to pray without worshiping? Absolutely. You can just recite a prayer or read something in a book. 
Is it possible to sing without worshiping? Yes, we, we've all have hummed along in words of a song that we haven't focused on. Is it possible to obey even without worshiping? Absolutely. But friends, those things are still a part of worship as we do them when we acknowledge why it is we're doing them. Lord, you've given me everything, therefore I give to you these things. Lord, I can't do it, but you can. Lord, I don't know the way, but you do. Lord, you have the truth, and we're going to declare it together. Friends, these patterns of worship are the right response to the revelation of our God. And if we long to see transformation in our life, then we will worship God and follow Jesus in that way. Now, the last thing that I want to focus on today before we dismiss is is just to acknowledge a reality that, that lies behind these two chapters. Behind these two chapters, when we read them, we see this this holy and awesome God. And when we see this holy and awesome God, we are reminded that we are sinful and we are broken and we are different from him. The reason why the angelic beings sing holy, 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 they sing basically other, 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 is because God is awesome and holy and we are not. And if you're here today, you might hear these two chapters read and you go, wow, that's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful picture. I'm glad that someone else was able to see it, but I would never be able to see it because I have sinned and fallen short of God's glory because of what I've done, because of what I've thought, because of of what I'm doing even right now. Well, friends, if, if that describes you and as you interact with this passage, that is where your mind has gone. Know that there is a solution to that problem that God gives First of all, know that it's, it's appropriate for you to feel that there is a difference between you and God and that we are broken and he is holy. As a matter of fact, that's what Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the holiness of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am a person of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. And God made a way, took an angel and had him you know, mark him so that he could stand in his presence. And in the same way, God is desired for all of us who live in this life, to have the opportunity to worship with him in this setting. But it it comes through what Jesus has done for us. We see that in the song that is sung in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. They, They sing of Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, no matter where you have come from, no matter what you have done, There is a price that needed to be paid so that you might be connected to God. And God was willing to pay that price by sending Jesus to offer his life as the ransom for our sins. And if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, then we have a hope and an opportunity to be with God and to worship in this environment one day. Because that is God's desire for you and because it is my desire for you, I hope it is your desire for yourself. And today, as you desire transformation in life, that you would begin by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and following him all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just the opportunity to be together today and to open your word and to study it. 
We pray that you would guide us as a church and as individuals, that we would be people who lay our lives low and lift you high. And Father, I pray also specifically for any who are here today who have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that today they would do so, that they would understand that Jesus was slain as a ransom for their sins, and that by trusting in him, they might have eternal life. We thank you so much, and we pray that you would guide us now as we leave this place and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.